0: Hello What The Fintech listener, it's Alex here, just taking a moment at the top of the show to talk to you about Checkout.com. Checkout.com is a leading payment solutions provider that helps brands drive more value from their digital payments. Purpose built with performance, scalability and speed in mind, their modular payments platform is ideal for merchants looking to seamlessly integrate better payment solutions globally. Checkout.com offers improved acceptance, better and more actionable granular data, a modular product structure that merchants can adapt to their needs, combined with deep local expertise, and a truly personal white glove service. It's why brands across the globe, like Samsung, Deliveroo, Klarna, and Farfetch, trust Checkout.com. Launched in 2012, Checkout.com now has a team of over 1,000 people across 18 offices worldwide, offering local expertise where it's needed, Uh, Their on-the-ground presence and deep knowledge of the regional payments ecosystem makes Checkout.com the ideal partner for optimising your payments globally. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to What The Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Bradley Riss, Chief Commercial Officer at Checkout.com. Welcome to the show, Bradley.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me. It's
0: great to have you on. Uh, This week's episode, we're going to be talking about data and payments. It's all about data to remember. We're going to chat about the reasons why data can really impact a firm's payment strategy, how to capture and utilize it, and what innovations are going to shape the future of the sector. But first, as always, is our news in numbers segment. Uh, This is where we've gone out and found some news stories with interesting numbers in them to chat about. It's traditional that our our guest goes first. So, Bradley, what story has caught your eye recently?
1: Sure. There was a a fair few to choose from this week, to be honest, but I ended up going with um, the news that Visa is going to acquire Tink. So Tink is the open banking firm uh, based in Europe, and the number is 1.8 billion euros.
0: Yeah, it's a big number, especially uh, not quite as big as the the Visa Plaid deal, which obviously got uh, nixed in the end due to uh, regulatory concerns. But Tink is a large open banking player in its own right, partnered with 3,400 banks, thereabouts, and financial institutions, claims to have millions of customers across Europe. Tink's one of those companies that uh, is increasing competition and choice. Visa says the deal, it would encourage open banking. I think the the price tag is pretty big i think it's somewhere along the lines of 160 percent or 165 percent premium on tink's uh valuation from last december this last funding round but yeah it, it's massive and it shows the, the seriousness with which some of the larger companies in the world are, are taking open banking and they're willing to lay down a lot of money for it and they're willing to put up do you see this as like a the start of a, a we've already had ex, ex, similar acquisitions from companies like Mastercard. But do you see this as like a waterfall effect that consolidation is in the air? It's going to continue to happen, especially in a market like, like payments and open banking put together.
1: It's very early. That's the thing that strikes me. Um, so I think companies like Visa and MasterCard are placing some expensive bets on the future, but they're right to do so, in my opinion. If you look at things like open banking or the arri- arrival of multiple local payment forms in multiple parts of the world, these are existential threats to the dominance that those two networks have had on a global basis. The thing that strikes me about Tink, you're right to mention Plaid, of course, that that got, as you said, nixed. Very different approach with Tink, which is very US-centric. I think all their offices are in Europe, whereas, of course, Plaid grew up very much in the US, providing almost a proxy solution as there was no framework like PST2 under which to operate. However, the intention is still very much the same. Visa, MasterCard have been looking for quite a long time at how to expand their revenue streams, obviously looking at some of the more traditional bank-based payments. And I think this rounds out that sort of approach. Again, I don't think the future of open banking is by any means set in stone. It's way, way too early to be picking winners at this point. But as a hedge, I expected there to be more investment activity than maybe MA. But nonetheless, Visa pulled the trigger here. So obviously, they've seen something in Tink that they like the look of.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the pulling of triggers. Is this something we can expect to see a lot more of in the future? Is it a case of who blinks first here? And we're going to see a lot more activity in the near future.
1: Well, you mentioned, obviously, similar acquisitions. When Visa buys a company, often MasterCard buys a similar one or vice versa. Again, looking at my crystal ball, it's hard to say. But could these young, open banking, specialized companies in Europe forge their own path? I I think they could, and I think there's precedent for that as well. But really, for me, this is an evolution of buying preferences in Europe for a long time. In the Netherlands, ideal is a very known payment method, but there's a network of banks that sit behind it uh, known as the Currents Network. This is really a step forward of that evolution. So you know that the customer interest is there. Obviously, what we haven't seen so far, really, is the transaction levels that would mean that adoption has now been almost set in stone. But I think you have to look... Beyond Europe. Visa MasterCard of course, very global by nature and have global aspirations. In their world, they want as many people holding their branded cards as possible. So inevitably, of course, they look to the fastest growing populations, the fastest growing middle classes, and very often those are not in the northern hemisphere nowadays. So I think that the big challenge in this sector as we move forward will be true interoperability. We'll probably touch on some of these subjects as we move on, but Open banking is not a new initiative. It's been very successfully rolled out in markets like India under UPI. If you look at initiatives in Australia, the uh, new payments platform, PICS in Brazil on a peer-to-peer basis could be compared. There's lots of networks that exist. So while you can build solutions for a specific market, I think what increasingly the, the holy grail, the silver bullet will be is providing a true network of open banking solutions on a globalized basis. So I think the company that can crack that nugget is really going to be onto a winner.
0: Excellent. I, I think uh, the, the thing that sort of stands out to me here is that there are a lot of reports out there in the news, story that, that uh, for this news that mention how regulators, especially in Europe, have been trying to encourage more competition with open banking. And yet it's, we find open banking firms being snapped up and consolidated by large players. Sometimes it seems the irony can be a little bit delicious, I, I assume.
1: Yeah, you're right. Obviously, antitrust kind of kicked in the US with plaid. Will European regulators look at this? I don't I do not know. What I do know is that the adoption of plaid in the US was, I would argue, substantially ahead on a per capita basis where someone like Tink or any other open banking provider in Europe is. So maybe that's one of the reasons why Visa thought you better move in before anyone does get to true scale, because obviously then you avoid additional scrutiny. That's absolutely me second guessing here by no means a confirmed view. But Again, this is nature of the beast. I think if you look at any organization, almost any industry outside of fintech too, there is this, this maybe learning from the past. There's historically been a very myopic focus from many organizations being too much within what they consider to be their core. If Visa views itself as a card network, then yes, it wouldn't buy Tink. But if it viewed itself as an entity to help customers better transact with merchant partners, then of course, Tink falls directly within their remit. So, yeah, there is an argument there that maybe are you stifling innovation and competition if you allow these transactions to go ahead? But equally, a lot of people create these businesses and at some point there is that consolidation. And during consolidation, you have mergers, you have acquisitions. But as I said, I do think there's room for a company to run independently here. At the end of the day, it's so early in that race to try and pick a winner at this point is... um, Optimistic, I
0: think, invest. While well, still talking about regulators, we'll move on to my news numbers for this week, which is the number is 21%, and that is the increase in the number of adults in the UK who are owning crypto assets. This figure is from the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, and it's up by 1.9 million from 2020. Bread probably on the back of a lot of a sharp rise in prices. Everyone loves to see those big roller coaster like. Uh, dips and dives and, and rises and also increased media exposure and that's our bad towards the end of 2020 apparently 78% of adults in the UK have now heard of crypto assets which is up from 73% and also the number of users who regard them as a gamble has fallen from 47% to 38% while a lot of people are increasing numbers rather are seeing them as either a complement or an alternative to mainstream investments. Sheldon Mills, the Executive Director of Consumers and Competition, of the FCA says it shows the market's growing, investors have benefited, as prices have risen, but com- consumers, as, as you'd expect from a regulator, they say consumers investing in these products should be prepared to lose all of their money. Cryptocurrency has been characteristically volatile this year. It's been a year where, as we mentioned, lots of media exposure means that people like myself, and I'm sure you as well, Bradley, have had people lighting up their WhatsApp and Signal and messaging services being like, so tell me about Bitcoin, should it be buying Bitcoin? I've certainly been having a few of those discussions with my friends, which is already eerily reminiscent of the GameStop saga at the start of the year. But Bradley, have you seen increased interest from those who would otherwise not be involved in the sector? And what's your uh, take on the crazy life of cryptocurrency this year? I
1: have a nice anecdote for this one, actually. Yeah, I think at first it was maybe a bit of YOLO. Then it became a bit of FOMO. Mm. Uh, and then, obviously, the more you see regulators stepping in, that's not necessarily a bad thing for the overall sector, especially on a long-term basis. It adds legitimacy. I was in Miami for the the Bitcoin 2021 conference, which was an interesting event to say the least. That <laughs> things are going mainstream when your Uber driver from the airport is giving you their tips for your altcoin strategy. This guy explained to me he's invested six hundred and thirty dollars via Robinhood, and I was thinking, huh, okay, this is where you know technology becomes a real enabler. And there's a lot of value, I think, in companies like Robinhood, by the way, in giving access to capital markets to people who historically would have found it very difficult. But crypto itself, what is it? Is it a currency? Is it an asset class? I think it's now turning, at least at the Bitcoin level, or that's a lot of the rhetoric into millennial gold. And again, there's lots of arguments as to why it has value as such, being inflation-proof and otherwise. But it's like all forms of value. It's really, it's almost like a critical mass can be reached, at which point, value is affirmed, and it doesn't necessarily, of course, nowadays, need a central regulator or treasury to be the one who you know, guarantees that promissory note. It can be almost a, a crowdsourced initiative, where if enough people hold, that inherently has value due to price elasticity demand. It's hard to say where it will be in five years' time. The volatility has historically always been there, and I don't see a reason why it will reduce to zero anytime soon, but I do think the oscillations of correction will get narrower and narrower on a percentage level as time goes by. And it's not like commodities, gold or anything else doesn't change in value relative to other assets either. So I see it. I do. I'm I'm a bull if I talk to crypto bears and I'm a bear if I talk to crypto bulls. So I hope that I'm somewhere of a centrist on this. But I do think as a store of value, you could argue that Bitcoin has a lot of value there as an alternative, if nothing else to maybe gold, which has obviously for so long been the traditional store of value in in the human world outside of currencies.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I I think that it's reminiscent of so many, crazes is not the right word, but you read about all kinds of things like the uh, South Sea investment boom in like the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about the railroad investment in the UK in the 19th century, where everyone and their dog from all portions of society had invested in railroad stocks and I think there's something extremely democratic about it and opening up, like you mentioned, of financial instruments to lay people. But I I feel like in a lot of cases, it can be driven by people who see crypto as, and this is by no means the entire sector, but a lot of retail, people I've spoken to in my life see it as a get rich quick aspect. And from the WhatsApp conversations I've had with friends of mine who have thrown a lot of money into cryptocurrency, expecting to make thousands of pounds, it's not gone quite as well as they hoped. And Regular listeners to this podcast will, will know that I'm no one to be taking any advice from about cryptocurrency for. Famously, by my own admission back in 2015 or so, I told my friends that Bitcoin would never go above £800. Pounds, so I've paid for that. Um, <laughs> I've paid for that quite drastically. Um, so it's definitely that goes to show that you, you can't predict these things. I thought I, I was going to be somewhere close to the, the number there, but I, I was proved disastrously wrong. And like you said, Bradley, I think we'll get to a point where perhaps the volatility will decrease and it stops being a speculative asset to one that has real world application but it's something that will take a a long time to get to
1: i hope you didn't take a leverage short position on that 800 pound price
0: but um... (laughs) absolutely not i was saying it back then i was saying it was too much for me to buy bitcoin so i definitely hit the band i was following the bandwagon and shaking my fist at it like an old man yells at cloud sort of situation and I, i i paid for that i try not to i try not to let it keep me up at night though
1: well, you're right to mention old men, I guess, because the most likely demographic to be skeptical of cryptocurrency tends to be old men. So maybe it is a new, a young person's game. But again, if you're going to bet on a on a demographic, bet on the younger ones. They uh, probably have longer <laughs> longer to exert themselves. But there are some fair concerns, right? You can lose your coins. They think up to twenty percent of all bitcoins ever. Ever mind have been lost. So when you say there's a, a, a minimum or a maximum supply, hence why it's an inflation-proof asset class, or maybe even the opposite, there is an element of no one really knows how much is out there. And of course, industry is opaque by design. So understanding who actually holds the majority of the assets is near to impossible. But I'm pretty sure if the uh, the Winklevi were to sell their vast sums, that would probably move the market by itself. So moving power from the Fed in the US and QE and these kind of things to a select group of individuals who placed bets on this cryptocurrency early days. Maybe we're just moving the problem left pocket, right pocket. But I don't know. I think alternatives are good for investors in in the large part. So if I was asked to lean to one side, I would say store of value. I think we're pretty close to firmly ticking that box when it comes down to at least Bitcoin uh, and arguably Ethereum too. And maybe some of the altcoins can be extended into that in the future.
0: in part two of the podcast this is the more interview style section where we focus the discussion down into a specific industry topic or sector we're going to dive into our topic about data and payments in just a moment uh, but first uh, i'm going to put bradley on the spot for a second and i'll give him a minute or two to to give us a rundown on, on checkout.com and a little bit more about himself so uh take it away bradley
1: thanks practice my elevator pitching <laughs> so Yeah, having been waxing lyrical about a whole bunch of topics I have an interest in, but I'm no means an expert in, having been involved in payments for the last 12, 13 years, lucky enough to work with many of the world's largest merchants, and having been based in Singapore, London, and San Francisco across that time, I guess this is an area where I feel pretty confident now. If you look at what Checkout.com is doing, to be honest, it actually aligns very much to my personal experience, which is trying to help the largest merchants in the world reach their customers wherever they are around the world. So the premise is that once a connection to checkout is built, you have access to all of the relevant local payment methods. And of course, core payment methods, your customers will want to pay you with. And then of course, there's a whole suite of services that complement that. So I wouldn't call them necessarily ancillary. They are definitely standalone in their own right and can be accessed as such. But if you have problems with fraud, for example, if you have questions around how do I handle strong customer authentication? If uh, you have the need for disbursements in the big gig economy, or you're a money remitter, uh, we have tools that basically enable you to facilitate the customer journeys you want to employ by helping you move money across your business.
0: A great elevator pitch, definitely. Or maybe we can see if we can put some light jazz in the background while you're doing that. Um, but we're here to to talk about data and payments, and I guess we should really kick off with the the classic scene setter. Data's obviously been a, a huge part of the financial services sector for a long time, but it can seem that way, but then also seem to be frustratingly uh, underutilized by firms. So from your perspective uh, and both and the perspective from checkout.com as well, you know, how, I suppose the answer is very, but how important and, and how much can data really impact a, a company's strategy when it comes to the way they process and operate payments?
1: Huge amount. <laughs> the trouble with data is it's uh... I noticed that in your jail, you have things like big data as a term, and I understand why. It's thrown around a lot, and it's very easy to just throw the word data out there, and people probably have this image of vast Excel spreadsheets and pivot tables spinning through their minds, but it's not really about the numbers. Yes, harvesting the data and the ability to do so is absolutely the key first step, but it's how you leverage that data to actually gain understandings. And in the payments world, you could argue that data goes from very customer-facing attributes, I wouldn't say that website interaction is a payments piece, but understanding 70% of Dutch consumers when buying retail goods want to pay with ideal, that's a good, very high-level data stat. And that can be ascertained or provided by any provider, really, that's just done any market research. I think when we look at payments data, we have to go a bit deeper. And unfortunately, this is where it starts to become a slightly less palatable and easy-to-understand topic. In short, there's a lot of data that flows through a transactions journey. So the moment you click buy to the moment that the merchant sees authorized in the return response, and the customer obviously sees congratulations, your order was success or your Uber is on its way or your flight is booked, there's a lot of things that happen. And a lot of data is flowing both from the merchant side all the way through the value chain that exists in payments and back again. It breaks down into two core areas. Firstly, it's around authorization. So if I can get a deep understanding of why a transaction fails or why it's successful, then I can probably do things that would enable that transaction to have the highest likelihood of being authorized, not necessarily for that specific customer, but looking at it from a broader data set perspective, trying to identify similar attributes of a transaction and making sure that, for example, they're routed in the correct way to ensure that the issuing bank who has given that customer their card has the highest likelihood of giving the authorization back So allowing good customers to make good purchases. And then the other side of it is really around fraud. So really two sides are very much the same coin. If I have a really deep understanding around the transaction, the data, the customer, and this could be looking at some of the metadata as opposed to payments data specifically, you can start to build a pretty good picture of what is this? Is this a customer? Is this someone who's new to my website but legitimate? They came through a banner ad and now they're taking X number of keystrokes to get through the page. And the profile of the transaction tells me that it looks safe, or is it a botnet running a whole bunch of stolen cards? And obviously, there's a sliding scale somewhere in between there where you want to maximize authorization rates and minimize fraud. And that's really what payments data is about. If you can harvest all of the data available and correctly leverage it, then you are able to drive incremental sales by increasing your auth rates. And sometimes that's not you know 10 basis points. It can be more than percentage points. If you're someone selling $100 million online annually, 2% increase in auth rates is a tangible seven-figure difference. And on the flip side, of course, reducing your exposure to fraud, both the damage that does to your brand, the experience,
0: and of course, the raw cost associated to From From what you've just said there, there are so many different aspects to it. Do you find that merchants in particular, it could be size agnostic, but I imagine these 100 million uh, companies are, are aware of the the ways they can utilize data. Do you, do you find that companies are, are a little bit surprised by... Um, how just how useful data can be to, to better optimize their business in total?
1: There's huge information asymmetries in the payments world. Like If you ask the average person on the street what happens when they make a purchase, they are very unlikely to know any part of the value chain that exists. But scarily, if you ask the majority of merchants in the world, they won't either. When you get to the top end of the industry, it's telling that, like I say 12, 13 years in payments myself, when I first got into the industry, The CFO was the one who made the decisions on behalf of their business, very much in isolation. It was a cost factor. It cost this much. Great. Okay. Well, that's in this column on my balance sheet. As it evolved as an industry, people realized that really what you're doing, if you think about card processing, I'm taking 16 digits, a CVV and an expiry date, and I'm taking it from your site through the value chain that exists that I'll explain a bit more about in a second, all the way back down and trying to get that done as efficiently as possible. That's pure technology. The money movement aspect of it is, of course, key, but it really follows that first technological play, which is a series of API calls that exists. So again, if you're looking at the top merchants now, they all have payments teams. The payments team is almost its own division. It doesn't really normally have direct reporting lines to the CTO, the CFO. It sits across the board as almost a shared services. And again, if you look at the way the largest companies are approaching payments now, it is actually an internal service provision. They will amalgamate transactions across all of the various subsidiaries that these multinationals have for efficiencies and economies of scale, but more importantly, to centralize the data. So they get a holistic view of how a customer is interacting with their brand. Again, I'm naming names here, not without saying that these companies are doing it, but if you look at the websites or properties owned by a Google or a Microsoft, there are a lot of dispersed places. You can interact with Microsoft on Xbox, on Skype. You can interact with them through Office 365. You need to have a, a really centralized view of that. But equally offer the flexibility to each business unit to say, hey, my business line is different. My customer demographic in, is different. My regional focus is different. So, how are you also able to provide a really localized uh, solution for your end customers? So, the data piece is almost secondary to that. The first step on the journey is people understanding that, hey, if you go to China, Union Pay, WeChat, Pay, Alipay are the prevalent payment methods the next step from there is to understand okay but if I try to route this way or route that way how does that affect my overall conversion rates and I think the top companies in the world recognize that it's a competitive differentiator I use that that one to two percent but I don't use that lightly that's a fair kind of figure to say that you can definitely correctly leveraging data move your authorization rates that much now two percent for an SME who's just getting started it's still meaningful but obviously much less than if you're and amazon and that probably translates into multiple billions of dollars so there's definitely a, a juncture where you go through where internalizing building this expertise in-house makes sense but for the majority of smaller merchants it probably doesn't and that's when you're relying on companies like checkout and others to help you understand what is data and how should i be leveraging it so i think there's a lot of consultation now that's taking place in the payments world about really educating uh, we understand that it exists at the top end of the enterprise sector already and we're starting to see it gradually trickle down but it's probably unrealistic to expect uh, your mid-market merchant to have 100 data scientists evaluating their payments data in real time. Uh, so that's where, again, you probably should look to partner on your journey to better understanding your payments and then squeezing out as much value from them as you can.
0: Exactly. and I, I mean, that that education piece is probably, it, it, like you said, it, it varies from company to company. Is it the same when it comes to something like, if we talk about other challenges and roadblocks that can get in the way of firms... Essentially, trying to innovate and better understand their business through technology. Is there a technological debt aspect here? And in, in both, like you mentioned, some merchants not really understanding the technological aspect of what happens when a customer taps a card or enters their details on a portal, versus also large institutions or merchants who have to deal with a lot of te- technology in terms of shipping and payments from all over the world. Is it an issue trying to marry uh, a smooth experience you want to use, uh, you want to give your customers when they make payments? By understanding their data, and also the sometimes spaghetti-like systems that can be in place after the, a legacy of a company going from small to very large. I'm
1: going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on the spaghetti systems, I think, because that's really a good cornerstone to, to understand the data story that comes after it. As I mentioned a couple of times, there's a payments value chain. Uh, and what I mean by that, and <laughs> I've tried to explain this using various utensils and other things before on kitchen tables, which has limited success, but maybe try and imagine this in your mind, that you're on the last website you bought from, or... Uber Eats or whoever, and you click order, buy now, book, uh, at that point, something happens, right? You in almost real time, probably a few seconds, see your order is on its way or your driver is ready or whatever it may be. What's actually happening in the background is that under the traditional flow, your merchant's website is connecting into a gateway. A gateway's purpose is to really aggregate volume and be a technical kind of connector to the networks and the platforms that sit behind them. And of those platforms, there's a fraud platform, normally, which is tends to be a different company. There's an acquiring bank. They're the ones who take on all the credit risk responsibilities. So they take a lot of the financial risk. If an airline goes out of business and all those tickets need to be refunded, the acquiring bank takes that liability. And then there's a what's known typically as a processing platform. And a processing platform interfaces specifically with Visa and Mastercard networks on one side. And on the other side, the gateway, which kind of started off the whole transaction, Thereafter, the networks integrate with the issuing bank who gave you your card and that flow works both left to right and right to left. So if you're imagining this, uh, the transactions journey, it goes merchant to gateway, gateway to fraud platform, to gateway to acquirer, who's licensed to processing platform normally, to the networks, to the issuing bank. And then you can just say that again in reverse. In total, it's it's either 12 or 14 API calls typically. So there's a lot of hops that's taking place there. And now to link that into the data piece The trouble is in that journey, a lot of those companies, well, there's a good chance that one of them is 30, 40 years old. So the ability for their platform to even be able to collect the data is limited. But invariably, each actor cares most about the data that's relevant to them in the chain. And to minimize the lines of code effectively that are required, they pass on the data they believe is relevant from their section to the upstream or downstream platform. What you have is basically a lot of dilution. I mean, it doesn't mean that any one of those individual companies is bad, but it does mean that they just have a very fragmented view of the payments data that exists flowing through that chain. In our world, it's a bit different. So we were not the first, but we have collapsed that four-party model, the gateway for all platform processor and acquirer into a single state solution. It means your transaction does not bounce between data centers hosted around the world. It means that it goes from, as a merchant, their website directly through the Visa Mastercard with no intermediaries. So yes, that's more direct. Yes, that's faster. Yes, that's more reliable. There's lots of good things there. Yes, it should actually be cheaper as well because there's fewer mouths to feed. But the real value uh, is on the data side. We have a completely holistic view in real time of the data that's happening to that transaction. So to allude to what I said earlier, if we determine that, hey, that transaction actually could have been successful or we should have sent it this way, we can actually make that decision either in conjunction with our larger merchants. Often they have this capabilities and this expertise in-house. Or as you start to go downstream, we can start helping merchants make these decisions proactively. So you're recovering those good orders that would otherwise be lost. They either abandon your car completely or go to a competitor. And then on the other side, as I said, we get a really deep understanding about who that customer is. Are they who they say they are? There's some great things happening in the world around strong customer authentication and various other anti-fraud measures. But fundamentally, a merchant needs to make its own view of the safety of a transaction. And that comes down to understanding as much of the data and the customer as you can. So really, it's a question of, and I don't love the word disrupt, but it's a, a question of optimizing what was that value chain and understanding that all four of those actors served a purpose when they evolved as companies at varying different stages throughout the last decades. Uh, but today, the most efficient way to run a transaction is, no surprise, the most direct route with the fewest API calls involved. So that's, I guess, the architecture component that we're solving for which enables us to get that first piece of the pie done, which is harvest all the data in real time. And thereafter, of course, as I said, it's around how you're analyzing that data to make real-time decisions.
0: Yeah, great. I I think there's, especially in the payment sector, it's one where the smallest change can have a huge impact. You spoke there about APIs, something that has really changed the way that payments operate both online and even in person as well, with the connections between bank accounts and the card that a person uses to pay. So we're talking about, you mentioned SCA there as well, another huge change that can change the entire technology landscape. We, some companies are still struggling to deal with it technologically in terms of authentication, customer journey, UI, and those kinds of things. It's really an industry that sort of pivots on a dime and, and really comes up with, with interesting ways to meet challenges. So, I mean, as someone who's obviously working with, I can only imagine, the some pretty pretty smart people in the payments industry, Is are, are there any technologies or innovations that either... Are currently being used right now that are being used differently, or, or are there some on some on the, the real bleeding edge that you think can really change the way that the payments data, payments and data, rather work for both merchants and and banks and all all sides of the chain?
1: There's a lot happening. You can take a very regionalized view of this because innovation is springing up all over the world right now, which is great. I think as you started with SCA, strong customer authentication, we can talk briefly about that. In Europe, there was a framework. Uh, for how this should be implemented under PST2. In the US, there is not. So it's very much horses for courses. Each country, each jurisdiction is taking its own approach to almost every aspect of payments. Mm-hmm. Uh, open banking, of course, being a, another example from that PST2 uh, changes that were made. The, the SEA piece is interesting because it's, it's great to actually have as an anti-fraud measure. It really does help reduce fraud on a global level. The challenge you have is that you also need everyone in that value chain to agree that they want to participate. Historically, what the problem was with what's now known as 3DS1, the initial version, was especially in the US, the largest card market in the world, is that the, the issuing banks just refuse to take liability. The US consumer is probably more knowledgeable around what a chargeback is and are more likely to raise them. Uh, US cards are also most most likely to be stolen. So the issuing banks just saw the 3DS flag come through and effectively said, Nope, (laughs) I'm not touching that one. And we just declined the transaction. So you really need adoption to happen on on all sides of the equation. And while it's great that 3DS 2 is now out and 3DS 2.1 and the various iterations that will come afterwards, uh, it still does need adoption for it to be effective on a global level. So if you're a merchant today thinking, Oh, great, this is a solution to all my problems. It absolutely is in some cases. And that, unfortunately, tends to be the answer in payments a lot of the time. Yes, but, or yes, and. Uh, So, yes, it's a great tool, and I think it's going to really help reduce global fraud rates, but we need to actually see full ecosystem adoption and on a global level uh, for it to deliver on the promise that it definitely has. Some of the other things, man, I've got so many which are coming to mind at the moment. It's been a a great year in terms of watching businesses arise. We touched on the visa acquisition of of Tink. So open banking is is hugely exciting. Less so in Europe, don't get me wrong. I think it's going to absolutely take off in the years to come. Uh, But as I said, it's too early to pick your winners. Whereas while in Europe, they created a framework that allowed private companies to innovate within that framework, in places like India with UPI, they created a national framework and almost made it a mandate very different approach, but it's working incredibly well. You're seeing some great adoption. And I think that was a huge step forward showing that in emerging markets, there's often the opportunity and payments is a great example of this. You can think of EMV, chip and pin, swiping, signing signatures, uh, but you can leapfrog other nations who may still be stuck with legacy technology that they'd invested in heavily. And I think that's what we're seeing in some of the emerging markets. So as we talk about innovation flowing both ways, I think Maybe it's a, maybe slightly US for you that you know, innovation often comes out of uh, the 50-mile radius around where I'm sitting now in San Francisco. Hard to argue with that when you look at a lot of the companies based here. But if you look at some of the initiatives, uh, for example, Google Pay in, was it I think, late last year, early this year, they are calling it Google Pay, but it existed as a Google Spot in India. And this effectively, if you want to imagine it, is WeChat Pay with a whole marketplace system where you have apps. So my friends in China will be chuckling wryly to themselves that it's great that America's just got this super app where, hey, guess what? Your payment method is linked through a centralized app to all of these other apps. You don't need to go into Starbucks and download their app. It's embedded within Google's now. But that's a really nice step forward. It's not a paradigm, but it is a a step forward in saying, hey, do I need those 500 apps on my phone? So I think you're seeing companies with payments technology. I'm not going to say embedded finance, but they are innovating within this space, leveraging a lot of the the old and the new that's coming up. Uh, so I'll probably I'll stick with those three. I'm not sure if you want to talk about any ones, but uh, if you want to talk about the application of stablecoins and CBDCs, that's probably
0: to be the bonus fourth one I'll throw into the mix. It demonstrates just how much is going. We probably don't have enough time in the podcast to uh, mention every single uh, innovation that's coming down the line. I want to pick up on something that checkout.com, if we're going to go global, you talk about breaking down the barriers to global economic prosperity. That's a big claim. So how do you start doing so w- with payments?
1: Yeah, it's quite a grandiose claim, isn't it? Um, payments saves the world. It's <laughs> Here's how I look at it. I think that a lot of what we do as a company is not to necessarily bring the sexiest innovations to the world. We provide the back end, the rails, the raw infrastructure that allows others to build on top of and take amazing advancements to market. You can look at some of the amazing customers we have, the likes of Revolut, the likes of Wise. Wise were disruptive in their own rights. They really helped put pressure on the money printing business that the banks had enjoyed for so many years of FX trading. And just with a little bit of a a nice UI and some realization of how interbank rates actually work and what mean reversion is, they were able to save customers, I don't know how much, but I'm guessing hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. But when I think about real kind of financial inclusion you probably have to start in more emerging markets and again another customer we have uh, is grab in southeast asia the uber of southeast asia if anyone's not familiar with them the uber of southeast asia but also so much more they really are becoming a a super app in their own right as well and if you think about some of the markets where they operate I, i use indonesia as an example they bought a company there some years back that effectively allowed for agent payments so if you're living in a remote village, you don't have a bank account, have been banked, none of your family ever has. You live basically on cash, but there is a very good chance that you do have a smartphone. Now, based on the very distributed nature of Indonesia, a number of islands and other things, it's often not easy to get access to goods or services. So a lot of online shopping actually has a lot of value there. But of course, if you only have cash on delivery, it's horrible. It's a terrible process. It actually is very expensive. It may not have a raw... Obvious cost, But obviously processing and handling cash is expensive in its own regard. So what Grab were effectively able to do is to say, well, there can be someone in your local area who will be able to take your cash and instantly transfer you the digital equivalent, not a digital currency, not a a cryptocurrency, but will be able to transfer you that value in Indonesian rupiah in real time to your Grab app. That Grab app allows you to order food, it allows you to go shopping, it allows you to do many other things. So you think about trying to get more people involved in in systems, in economic systems specifically, and I think payments plays a huge role. It may be, in that case, a very last mile story. It may be a Robin Hood story where it's a great service that they're providing in terms of UI, but equally needs to have payment methodologies that are linked to it that enable people to quickly, safely add money to, to their account there so they can actually start transacting capital markets. But again, it transcends. In the developed markets, it may be around trust, safety, and that last 20% of consumers who haven't yet started engaging in the online economy and all the benefits that can bring. Whereas for the Indonesian example, and of course, there are many other emerging markets, it's really a much more grassroots effort where the majority of the country may not have access. And this, in my mind, is a way of just increasing flows of commerce. And while we live in the world, we do, flows of commerce tend to be what drives prosperity and progression.
0: Here we are in part three for everyone's favorite section, the fintech jail. Uh, this is where we ask for an industry term, a buzzword, a trend, a topic uh, that our guest has seen or heard enough of, be it on the discourse, online or at conferences. Uh, we'll then discuss whether it deserves a place in the jail or if it's already in there, whether it deserves an extended sentence or indeed should be sprung out and, uh, led left to escape down the highways of uh, the fintech conference circuit so bradley what buzzword or or trendy topic have you brought with you today
1: so quick question first has anyone actually done a jailbreak yet
0: (laughs) no not yet
1: okay great i'll be a first Uh, you may disagree with me but i was looking through some of the previous words that um have been committed to jail and it's funny because a lot of them before i would even looked at that list were ones i thought oh that's a good candidate but then one crossed, one actually ships in the night a bit with one of the words I was thinking about that isn't on the list. So I'd actually like to do a switcheroo. I think that there was a felony was committed, but the wrong word went to jail. So I'd like to take out blockchain, and the reason I'd like to take out blockchain is that I know its inclusion initially was based on the fact that it was pitched as the catchall to save global financial strife. Um, but I do think that what we're seeing nowadays with blockchain are real applications. If you're looking at anything from DeFi and a lot of the things that are being built in L2, these are real world applications of blockchain technology. Ignore cryptocurrency for a second. You can definitely put that in there to an extent. But blockchain itself, I think, does have relevance, does, does have value. And I don't think it's a buzzword per se. I think that we're still seeing applications of blockchain. And we're not going to actually have proof of that technology's power for years to come. Uh, you could look at NFTs and other things arising from the overall crypto sector. And I think there's a lot, a long, long way left to go uh, for the applications of blockchain itself. So I think it's too early for us to commit it to a penitentiary. The replacement word though would be cryptocurrency. And the reason I want to put cryptocurrency in there is I feel like that became very buzzy. It's not really a currency. It has never really behaved like a currency. The, you know, the time it takes to register a new block takes a long time. There are some cool networks. Solana's doing some cool things and some others as well, where they are able to increase the transactional throughput. But fundamentally, the way people are interacting with it, your friends who may or may not have made a lot of money, they're probably not viewing it as something that they want to hold on to so they can go buy a coffee. They're viewing it as an asset class. And I think if you're looking at the BBC article that was describing the FCA's I guess, I wouldn't say crackdown, maybe the FCA's approach to to crypto in general, they are describing this crypto asset. I think that's a much better replacement. Crypto asset is broader. You could put things like NFTs in there as well, which have a perceived value like an artwork may. And that, of course, could be an investment asset as well. And just like Bitcoin is millennial gold, I think that it deserves the same sort of classification as an asset class versus a currency. So blockchain out, cryptocurrency in.
0: Wow, that's that's it's like a it's a bingo there, really, isn't it? It's like bring out the the kicking boy of conferences across the world right now, and bring in the one that everyone that is gonna. I don't know if there are any crypto accounts on Twitter following us, but they're probably going to be coming after you after this one.
1: I'm a fan of crypto. Let me just make that clear. Cryptocurrency, (laughs) I like the word.
0: (laughs) I think we we have blockchain in there for five years with a review and it's already been one year. So it's four years. So I guess it is about due time. It's probation review. I remember when this one was put up there, I thought it feels like it's kicking someone when they're down. And I'm not like a a blockchain evangelist, but I feel like I've always felt like there are a lot of applications that can fit into things when it comes to things like supply chain finance and things like that. Simple stuff like uh, even simple stuff like documentation for shipping. Uh, so I, I I think we have an opportunity here, and it's not just because it's the first one to to spring someone out. At least until I imagine in a few months' time we'll get someone else who wants to put it back in again. <laughs> um, I think I could agree that the blockchain can go out on. Uh, we'll put an electric tag on its ankle to make sure that it it doesn't go too far. But as for cryptocurrency going in, I can see that I can already see in my mind's either the torches being lit and the pitchforks being handed out. But I think on the basis of your explanation there, that you think that the, the term cryptocurrency," as opposed to the, as, in, as opposed to crypto assets and all that, I think you've given a persuasive enough case there that I think cryptocurrency can go in for at least a couple of years with again with probation like blockchain, they can pass each other on the way in and out of the prison gates and have a knowing, knowing nod to each other. How does that sound?
1: I'll take it. Blockchain out on time served and cryptocurrency in on a short-term sentence.
0: Well, that's all we have time for this episode of What The Fintech. Thanks to Bradley for joining me. Before we sign off though, do you have any socials or websites you want to plug?
1: Yes, uh, be remiss of me not to do so. So checkout.com, the clue is in the name. That's how you can find us. And if you are a merchant accepting payments online, please do so. You can easily get access to a lot of the tools that we have there. And the best way to know if we can back up what we say is to test us out so please visit the website for more information about the company
0: brilliant and you can uh, find me uh, on twitter at adhamilton 91 where if you check the date we recorded this podcast i posted an image of me sitting under a blanket to ensure that this podcast has good sound quality so make sure you check that out uh, i can also be found on on linkedin by just searching my name alexander hamilton and trying to filter out all the broadway stuff um As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at Fintech Futures, and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo with the two Fs. Uh, If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your podcasting service of choice. And we always really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by recommending us to a friend or writing a review or something along those lines. Uh, As always, we thank you very much for any and all support. We will see you soon for another episode of What the FinTech. But until then, goodbye.